1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today, my guests and I will be speaking not about literature, but about language. But of course, literature will also be part of this conversation. To be precise, we will be discussing language as a cross-point of multiple venues, history... Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today, my guests and I will be speaking not about literature, but about language. But of course, literature will also be part of this conversation. To be precise, we will be discussing language as a cross point of multiple venues – history, politics, a history of language, sociology, culture, and, of course, literature. So we will be discussing an interdisciplinary collection of essays, The Battle for Ukrainian. And uh, my guests are the editors of this uh, collection. Uh, Dr. Flyer, Oleksandr Potebnia, professor of Ukrainian philology, Department of Slavic Languages and Literature, and Department of Lingu- Linguistics, Harvard University, his research interests include historical Slavic linguistics, including the history of the Ukrainian language, and medieval East Slavic history and culture. Uh, Dr. Graziosi, Professor of Economics and Modern uh, European History, University of Naples. Dr. Graziosi's area of expertise includes political history of languages and their relations with nations, nationalisms, and peoples from the Reformation through decolonization. And Dr. Haida. Senior Advisor, Ukrainian Research Institute, Harvard University. His special interests include early modern Ukrainian history and culture and contemporary Ukrainian history and politics. Hello, thank you so much for coordinating your schedules and joining us today. Hello, thank you. So, The Battle for Ukrainian just came out, and it was published by the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. Congratulations. Thank you. So the project itself was launched a few years ago, in 2014, when the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute organized the conference States, People's, Languages, a Comparative History of Ukrainian, 1863-2013. This conference seems to have invited the discussion on language in the context of political history. It commemorated the 150th anniversary of the Valuiv Circular. Moreover, the conference itself took place alongside some dramatic and tragic events in Ukraine. One of the outcomes of this um, conference is the publication of the battle for Ukrainian. But uh, what was the impetus for initiating a conversation that reveals language in general as part of geopolitical projects, socio-economic changes, cultural interactions, and nation and identity formation? What does the Ukrainian case communicate uh, when these projects are considered? Well, as someone who actually is not one of the editors of the book, but one of the organizers of the conference, perhaps I will take the lead, and I will begin by just mentioning that anniversaries uh, are, for us at the Ukrainian Institute, a very good occasion to examine certain
2: uh, issues and problems. Uh, That was the case with Holodomor on the 50th and 75th anniversary, 300th anniversary of the Battle of Poltava, and so forth. So it seemed only natural that as the 150th anniversary of the Maluyev Circular was coming up, that uh, we think about whether and how to uh, look at the issues that that historical event uh, presented. Uh, There were other projects uh, for that out there, and they all seemed to be uh, concentrating on the actual event of 1863. The idea occurred to us that it might serve us better if we took the events of 1863 and the Valuya circular as the jumping off point to look at developments uh, in the political fate of Ukrainian uh, since then over the past 150 years. That, of course, made it uh, a much larger, a much broader a theme more difficult to handle because 150 years of very different developments required a special kind of organizational approach. Uh, It was Dr. Graziosi who also added the suggestion that rather than concentrating on Ukrainian alone, that we look at this in comparative perspective, and not only in comparison with the usual Uh, neighbors of Ukraine, as sometimes we do with Poland or with Hungary, with Romania, but actually seek our examples worldwide. When we combined the two approaches together, the historical and the comparative, uh, the actual result was that we divided the 150 year period into specific historical, chronological segments that seems to make some kind of Uh, unity, Uh, sometimes it was not so easy, but and within each one of those to seek appropriate languages for comparison.
3: So in each period, the languages may have differed, but they played a a significant comparative role for the stage in which Ukrainian was. So, for example, in the first period, which covered the late Tsarist period, 1863 to 1905, Uh, We took the examples uh, from the uh, Continental Empires, uh, another case from the Russian Empire, but with a different uh, kind of background, Finnish in Finland, the Grand Duchy, and from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Croatia. To give just another example, not to go through all of them, uh, the period of totalitarianism, the 1930s through the 1950s, uh, we chose, uh, as uh, for comparative purposes, Catalan in Spain. And also the dual fate of the languages of uh, the Jewish people, that is Yiddish, which because of various catastrophes of war uh, was practically eradicated. And at the same time, the revival of Hebrew as the national language of uh, Jews in their homeland in uh, Palestine that would result in the creation of Israel. Uh, So these two approaches, uh, I think, lent a special, uh, in fact, unique character to this uh, project. And I will end by saying that it brought together for the first time uh, what would not appear natural, Uh, colleagues, but people who were perhaps discovering each other for the first time. Students of Ukrainian uh, language and language politics uh, were perhaps for the first time uh, collaborating with uh, Finnish scholars and uh, French-Canadian, students of French-Canadian linguistic uh, problems, or Catalan, or problems of Irish, and at the same time the representatives
2: of those uh national languages and studies were perhaps interacting with us for the first time and discovering
3: what commonalities and what differences we had so i believe that out of this we all
0: came out much better informed given the time that this conference was planned uh, what was going on uh, specifically in linguistic politics uh, in ukraine we also wanted to make sure that uh, there was a, a good basis for understanding the vicissitudes of Ukrainian over the centuries, uh, how far back we could actually trace it, uh, what had happened along the way, and so we uh, chose uh, people who were actually experts in particular periods to uh, assure us that uh, those areas were covered, because there had been uh, new discoveries in archives that needed to be talked about, and uh, therefore we uh, decided to go in that direction as well. Uh, I myself, being a historian of language like to get back to the the early days when one can begin to see uh, a unity of East Slavic uh, beginning to fragment into what we might call proto-dialects. And so uh, one of the main points that I was interested in was uh, showing that there were actually certain directions of change specifically in sound which are are not usually the subject of of influence or intentionality. People don't automatically decide to start pronouncing consonants differently. This is something that a linguistic community uh, experiences and begins to change slowly over time. And it is possible actually to trace uh, some of the very important early characteristics of Ukrainian uh, back to uh, a period even before the uh, the, uh, Mongol yoke, Uh, in the 13th century. And uh, so I thought that that was important to do because of the fact that in the current political scene, people who are pushing uh, essentially some sort of equivalence between Russian and Ukrainian on Ukrainian territory
2: bring up all kinds of issues that really are are not relevant and and simply misleading. Uh, The uh, relationship between dialect and language, for instance, is very loaded and uh, has to do With politics as much as it does linguistic analysis. Yes, and as uh, Ida was saying, I, being a historian, I was always struck by the huge wave of state building that took place in the past 200 years all over the world, basically. You know, there are about 200 recognized states today in existence. They were maybe 20 or 30 200 years ago. And besides this 200, there were many attempts at state building. I think only in Ukraine there were at least seven or eight attempts at state building, only in the 20th century, with different ideologies. And uh, with each attempt at state building, there was a language question. How to deal with language, which language to choose, how to foster that language, how to maybe deal with other language existing in the territories of the state, that was supposed to be created and so on and so forth. And so and Ukraine, according to me, provided an extraordinary lens to study this because uh, during this, especially past 100 years, but as Professor Fly was saying also before then, Ukraine has been a laboratory of coexisting languages and developing languages. And so I thought that would be a very good idea to project a comparative back this Ukrainian case on a comparative background, which would allow us also to look at the different tools, both spontaneous as, again, he was saying, and instead conscious that you can use in order to build a language, to standardize a language, to battle or repress a language and I thought that by comparing different cases that to me are extremely interesting and allow us to understand much better not only the Ukrainian case but the language question in general. This could be really uh, very not, not important, really interesting. And I think the conference and the book show this very well. Because for example, just to be an example and then maybe we can enter some cases, the comparison of the Soviet Union with other plurilingual political entity like the Habsburg Empire, but also India, for example, is very fruitful. And the comparison of the developing of Ukrainian or the repression of Ukrainian is extremely uh, revealing if you put it into contrast with the Irish case or the Finnish case. You know, Ireland is maybe the most interesting uh, case, but many others too. So the idea was to, to, to build this larger... Spectrum of cases, and then to see how the the various factors change their roles in different conditions. Religion, for example, would be a perfect example of
1: this. Okay. Can we uh, speak a little bit about history? So one of the starting points for this collection is the, um, the um, Valuyev circular, which was enacted in 1863. And this circular was also followed by Yemsky Decree in uh, 1876. Would you briefly describe these two documents in a historical sense?
0: There was real concern in the imperial Russian government about the potential separatism of Ukraine from the Russian Empire. They had already had the experience of the Polish uprising, and for that reason, there were officials in the government who wanted to make sure that Ukraine remained part of the Russian Empire. Uh, Pyotr Valuyev was one of them. He was the Minister of Interior, and what he essentially circulated was a, a secret document, one that was never published, that pointed out the various areas uh, in imperial life, you might say, where the Ukrainians seem to be doing things that might actually represent uh, a separatist move and felt the uh, urgent need to do something about that. Uh, there's a bit of irony uh, in the uh, actual language itself, because on the one hand, Valuyev uh, actually complements some of the uh, literary productions done in uh, the language of um, what he called the little Russian language, which is the term for Ukrainian in the Russian Empire, uh, that there were actually some very uh, talented individuals and that that was fine for the, what he was really talking about, the elite uh, citizens of uh, what he called Southern Rus. But when that language began to uh, actually be extended to other domains such as education or uh, religion, that already was signaling a, a danger point. And at that time, although recognizing the little Russian language and calling it that, suddenly he turned around and said, after all, this is nothing but a, a dialect, and that it never was a language, it never will be. So there's built-in contradiction there. Uh, one of the interesting points made in, uh, in the uh, book is that there was actually not total agreement within the government itself uh, about what to do with the Ukrainian. Uh, the
3: Finnish case was actually mentioned uh, as one where a language could
0: actually... Uh, be used uh, for regular purposes, and that it did not necessarily represent uh, a threat. Uh, but, so, at any rate, that was the, the story. The, the interesting fact also, as pointed out in our book, was that uh, the value of circular, even though this was presumably the policy of the government, it had lots of leaks. Uh, there were uh, people, the censors simply didn't uh, see what was going on when things were published, uh, all one had to do was change the name of the language from Little Russian to Southern Russian, and all of a sudden things got published. So In other words, it, it didn't. It didn't totally work. The Em's uh, decree. Uh, maybe Luca would like to talk about that. Well, the Em's decree of uh, 1876, uh, which was signed by the Emperor uh, when he was outside of Russia, uh, at Em's uh basically extended and uh, amplified on the um, the Baluyev, uh circular and its main objective i think was to again tighten the um, scope, uh scope of the language uh, limiting it largely to belletristics uh to uh, literature and again uh, it was uh not supposed to spread into other spheres. I'm not sure it made it into this book, but I am reminded by Professor Flyer's mention of religion, uh, a point made by another one of our colleagues uh, at one point, Roman Shporluk, that in the 1880s and 1890s, the publication of the works of Karl Marx in Russia were completely legal, whereas in the nominally Orthodox religious uh, Empire,
2: a Ukrainian translation of the Bible was not permitted was illegal in view of the one hundredth anniversary of the revolutions that we are commemorating or that we are noting uh, this year. it is a rather uh, ironic but of course, as Professor Flyer says and I do not mean to uh, negate by my remarks. the importance of what he said was that it was like a sieve through which, you know, a great many things, you know, uh, were able to uh, come out. But it was the the intent, the trajectory, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. of those two uh, documents that was important. And if I can also add, uh, one of the important uh, outcomes of this is what the imprint it left on the psychology of Ukraine people who otherwise might not remember Valuyev and perhaps even his name may well remember the phrase niebolo, I, be, it became one of those stereotypical phrases that some people have picked up and many of them gave this phrase their own interpretation, their own meaning which may not have been exactly that, that was meant by Valuyev. so the, there is a lingering legacy beyond the strictly uh, policy Uh, level. Uh, Yes, if I may add something in the sense that the value, if you project it on a longer run, on a longer period, of course is one of the the softest, let's say the softer variation of the repressive policy adopted against the Ukrainian language in the course of Russian and Soviet history. Because of course you have also the the much more brutal policy of let's say, after 1932-33, in which really there was the terrible repression of Ukrainian that distorted the development of Ukrainian for many decades. But what is particularly interesting, and I go back to comparison, yes. and also in the history of Ukrainians, we have a period in which the Ukrainian was also promoted yes. and built, and there were attempts to develop it consciously, alphabetically, uh, linguistically, from the point of view of Dictionaries and, and this was very true. For example, in a more informal ways before World War One, after nineteen o five, and in a formalized, very political way in the years of, let's say, Ukrainization, as it was called uh, in Soviet history. So, uh, a history of a language that was su- subjected to both great and less great, but still very bad repression at the same time. Uh, very strong uh, promotion of the language. And this is very revealing when you look at other cases that went through very similar stages, uh, not as brutal. So the radicalization, the radicalism of the Ukrainian experience throws a, a very revealing light even on other experiences. At, at, at the same time, for example, I go if you take Irish, which is, you know, Ukrainian still lives quite well in Ukraine, and not only in Ukraine. Gaelic in Ireland, in spite of all the promotion that there was after the independence of Ireland, is still the national language of Ireland. But its, it's knowledge it's very limited in a way. So the, the, the Ukrainian case shows also the, I would say, the the relative success of promotion and repression. They were speaking about the relative success of repression because it was a sieve and many things passed through and Ukrainian could develop in spite of repression. At the same time, the limits of promotion, because it could be reversed, for example, in Stalin's Soviet Union it was reversed brutally, or it could be ineffective. That is, it's not always true that if you promote consciously a language, you are successful in this. So there are limits to the political let's say, guidance of a language. If I could add to that, because the Irish case, I think, is instructive for Ukrainian in many ways, Um, if we look at the uh, political history of Ukrainian, uh, in again, in the historical setting, it is very often in connection with nation building. And in the case of many Ukrainians, especially those interested in ideology uh, of nation building, there was a very close connection between the language and the nation, and the fear that the disappearance of a language means the disappearance of the nation.
3: And the Irish case is very interesting, also in showing that there can be a distinction made that even as the use of the Russian of the Irish language declined or actually almost disappeared from public use, uh, the Irish nation and uh, national identity. Existed. This is something that some Ukrainians are discovering today, uh, as they are rethinking the relationship of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country in light of the events since 2014. Uh, It is my my feeling that many Ukrainian speakers, especially in Western Ukraine, prior to 2014, viewed Russian speakers with suspicion because they felt that the language was a kind of indication of political uh, sympathies. And in light of the uh, events and the fact that there are Russian speakers represented, maybe even overrepresented among the fighters uh, in the East, uh, that has been changing. And uh, there has been a recognition that language, you know, is not necessarily... Identified with national identity, so again, this comparative perspective, you know, is very useful uh, for in consideration of such processes. Again, getting, getting back to this theme of, uh, of of state support for a language, uh, I think it's especially appropriate in the current situation, where you know about the recent uh, education law, which um, is establishing that after the fourth year, uh, all instruction must be in Ukrainian, with certain exceptions made um, and uh, of course given the situation that Ukrainian has inherited with Russian having been there for so long, uh, especially in urban areas so that in essence uh, the
1: largest cities including in Kiev were more Russophone than Ukrainianophone uh, that uh, it is of course extremely important for the government to do uh, what it can within a European context which is also important to make sure that Ukrainian is supported, uh, but on the other hand, it also takes support from the people who care about Ukrainian and want to make sure that it preserved is preserved and and, and thrives. Namely, that uh, so many Ukrainians are bilingual, uh, and uh, I, I actually teach a course in in the summer called uh, "Ukrainian as Linguistic Battleground." I have a chance to talk to many students who come, and uh, they talk about their experience of being in a classroom where the instruction is entirely in Ukrainian, and then as soon as they walk out the door, they lapse into Russian again. There there needs to be a kind of effort on the part of speakers to make sure that Ukrainian remains outside, and they keep on using it wherever they can. That's the way they make it stronger. And as children come up through the system and are educated, that process will become much more natural, and Ukrainian will be able to thrive as it should. Yeah, I think this last comment touches upon the issue of the uh, co-balancing of state language, official language, and national language.
2: Yes, you know, I I, I go back to what Dr. Haider was saying, you know, it is true that on average, nation, language has been a flag of nationalism. This is a 19th century expression, I think it's from the Flanders, from Flemish. And, and but this is not always the case. So the first thing that one has to remember, because another example could be Kazakhstan. In mm-hmm. Kazakhstan, Russian is the standard language, but Kazakhs know who they are very well. Uh, so of, on, one, on the one hand, the, the language, it's very important, can be a flag and the status to support it, as the uh, Professor Fly was saying. On the other, I think there should be also freedom because especially if you move in a bilingual context, bilingualism I think is the worst solution because in a way, because when you are monolingual, of course there are no problems, but you risk of becoming very parochial. I'm Italian for example, in Italy, only Italian was spoken up until the new immigration wave. And of course this means, or in Japan, this means that you build islands of languages with very little very little, very limited, let's say, confrontation with that side, which is not good, even for the national culture, I would say. That is, the language then becomes a sort of protectionism. And this is instead of an opening uh, instrument, that is as it should be. On the other hand, if you have a bilingual situation, then it's, uh, one dies, the other survives. It's a battle. It's really a battle. And this is not good. That is, the two language. Confront each other in a sort of constricted atmosphere. So I would say that in what are already multilingual realities, like Ukraine, like, but there are many others in the world by now. And I think with this huge immigration, migration waves, this is going to be a very common situation all over, even in traditional countries. I would say that bringing into it new languages and new openings to evade this prison of the two language confrontation, is of great cultural and political importance to me that is uh, for example if i think of the role that english could have in ukraine as a sub uh, in order to avoid this idea that you have to do russian to reach the world you can do it also through english and then it would be not directly conflictual, for example it would be just another opportunity these things have to be considered but of course given all the repression that there has been in Ukraine. And I I would say that Ukraine is probably, I, I think with Catalan, but Catalan it lasted very shortly. But Ukraine is possibly the case in which the language was most radically repressed, at least in Europe, in the 20th century. So, of course, in Ukraine there is a very special situation, and the state, of course, is extremely worried about it, and rightly so. Once again, a thing that the, the I think can be done uh, uh, by the state is encouraging,
0: for instance, uh, greater expression in Ukrainian on television, uh, in, in the press, in literature, as you mentioned. And it seems to me that the way that Ukrainian can th- uh, thrive is to create wonderful literature, wonderful television, great newspapers with interesting stories that will attract the, t- the attention of people who primarily speak Russian, but also know Ukrainian. It's a way of making Ukrainian count
1: for everyone. So you mentioned uh, all this multiple influences that are somehow caused or conditioned by the language. Would you share your philosophy of language with us?
0: Philosophy of language? Yes. <laughs> you go <both> first <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, you know, the language, of course, can be looked upon in, many different ways. Uh, I'm especially interested in the way that languages change over time, but you know, at, at heart, uh, language is simply a way that we as human beings can communicate with each other. So yes. communication is ultimately at the foundation of everything. Uh, when we communicate each other with each other, uh, uh, in, a, in an honest way, in a way that trust can be established so that a community itself can thrive then the language is doing its job. Uh, when a language, uh, is pushed, pressed, twisted in a way that stirs up all of the feelings of hostility or insecurity that we, of course, experience as well, then it can do a lot of damage. It's essentially a neutral, uh, means which can be distorted in, in very many ways as we know. Uh, The Soviet Union, I think, you know, was an experimental laboratory as to how to take language and twist it upside down. I mean, one little example, it's a small one, but it shows the effects, is that Ukrainian has a a letter that looks like a Greek gamma, and it's pronounced H-. And in standard Russian, it's pronounced G-.
2: Ukrainian has some words that have G- in them. So... A new letter was invented and ultimately incorporated into the standard language. I think any Ukrainian knows it. It's the same gamma with a little hook on the end. One of the things that the Russian, the Soviet government decided to do was to remove that, only to bring Ukrainian closer to Russian. Well, there's a standard way of transliterating from Cyrillic into Latin. You take the letter gamma, the, the, the uh, the get, you know, or head, depending on which language you're talking about, and you, for Russian, you would write G, but for Ukrainian, you should write H. Because we're talking about the Soviet period, people got so used to transliterating that letter into G, that even in today's Ukraine, you still see it in in certain official documents. That hasn't changed. In other words, people just get used to it, and and they don't even realize what they're doing. So, uh, that's really going out on a very, you know, small little way to show how much uh, language, how, how important it is, first of all, that a government would be thinking about getting rid of a single letter, uh, but how how vital it is that language be used uh, to communicate the best aspects of human life, and I guess that's where I would leave yes, it. Yes, I, 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 I agree <laughs> in the sense language is basically an act of freedom of the individual, right. because there are as many languages as individuals exist, we all speak our own language. So, in a way, the story of Ukrainian, but also of Ireland and other stories that you will find in the book, show that to repress a language is possible, that the manipulation of languages is a possible act. Of course, you cannot cannot say that peoples or languages are immortal, because this is simply not true. History is history. You can influence them, you can distort them, you can repress them. On the other hand, shows also the limits of these policies. That is, you can repress, you can distort up to a certain point, and you cannot be sure what will come after. Because it is what the people decide when they speak that determine whether a language will be successful or not, will resist, will change. For example, I think that the Irish case to me, just to think, was so interesting when I started to study it. Because, for example, the defeat of Gaelic so it, it is due, of course, to British repression in the 17th century, 18th century, but also it's due to the fact that, for example, the Catholic Church that in theory one would imagine was pro-Irish, of course, and anti-English, anti-protestant English, the, the, the Catholic Church in, in Ireland was against the use of Gaelic because they were promoting Latin and uh, or English. And, uh, for example, the fact that one of the most important factors in determining the, the victory of English, and of course the, the Irish peasants didn't like the, the England so much, was the fact that they were immigrating to the United States. And so they felt the need to learn English, because it was to evade, to escape British repression. They went to the United States. It was an English-speaking country. So it is also the choices of people based on their convenience that determine the evolution. And this is to me, you know, to discover this freedom is all, always very refreshing in a way. If you think of the Jews that were brought, 100 years ago there was no Jewish language, no Hebrew. No Hebrew. Hebrew was a dead language. There were there was Yiddish, that by now is almost it's a dead a fake, language yeah. because of, of course, Nazi, Holocaust, and whatever, and also because of it. Mm-hmm. The so, and or German, you know, the Jews, the, 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 the Jewish elite was speaking right. German and the masses were speaking English and now they're speaking Hebrew in 100 years. So things change so fast and the, 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 the state has a great power. The political elites, the literary elites have a power of language, but language also follows its own lines. And I think the more freedom there is, the better it is for But the invasion by by, uh, Russia in uh, 2014, I think clearly made people, even those who are primarily Russophone, realize what a different country Ukraine is as opposed to Russia. And they, I think, I think it really played up to their patriotism and their love of Ukraine. And I think it developed a lot of goodwill. And that's what I'd like to see used to actually think beyond quote unquote ethnicity to Ukraine. To civic Ukrainianism that everyone can appreciate and and support, and I think that a uh, love of the Ukrainian language can come with it without denigrating the Russian language. It's possible. If I could add to that, uh, and, you know, and you know, support what Professor Flyer just said, uh, perhaps we should also bring in ethnic and linguistic minorities in Ukraine into the uh, question, uh, into this uh, issue, and uh, in one of my recent uh, trips to Ukraine, I had the opportunity to interact quite uh, uh, intimately with representatives of Crimean Tatars, especially the younger generation, who were, by the way, uh, almost all fluent Ukrainian speakers, but at the same time their native language was Crimean Tatar, And they were uh, identifying more and more with Ukraine and calling themselves Ukrainians, without denying the fact that they were Crimean Tatars. And when I uh, was inquiring, well, what makes you identify with Ukraine? He said, well, because in Ukraine, unlike in Crimea under Russia, we can be ourselves. In Ukraine, we can be Crimean Tatars. We can cultivate our language. We can promote our culture more than we can in Russia. And that makes us more patriotically. Ukrainian because this is the country that gives us this uh, opportunity this
3: freedom so uh, and that is developing the civic kind of uh, identity that professor flyer just mentioned
1: Well, thank you so much. I I, I love this idea uh, about language as uh, vital, fluid and empowering. Well, um, I would like to thank all of you for our conversation today. And again, congratulations on your publication of the uh, Battle for Ukrainian, which is a major contribution to the current issues involving the local and the global national and uh, identity formation language policies as tools for regulating not only cultural domains, but historical and political as well. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.